season's greetings to you and your loved ones. May this Christmas be your healthiest to date. The Christmas cheer is infectious here at the Wellness Couch and we've put together one very special hamper for one very special wellness coucher. One lucky person who registers for any wellness-based camp event in 2019 will win a wellness hamper including a selection of primal alternative Christmas-baked treats to enjoy on Christmas Day, two jars of bone broth from our good friends at Tone Made, that's one beef and one chicken, and a VIP upgrade to the wellness-based camp you're attending including front row seats, dinner with the speakers and a whole lot more. Valued at over $400, this wellness hamper could be yours when you register for the Wellness Base Camp in Fremantle, Newcastle or Auckland. All the details are at thewellnessbasecamp.com and all you need to do is get your tickets before the stroke of midnight on Sunday, December 16. Happy, healthy Christmas to you from all of us here at The Wellness Couch. The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimising your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 202 of The Real Food Real, we share with you an episode from Up For A Chat where I was interviewed on four of my favorite topics. You will learn about LCHF, fasting for fat loss, hormonal control, and gut health. I hope you enjoy hearing me on the other side of the microphone this week. So we have the amazing Steph Lowe with us. Now, most of you guys, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm convinced most of you guys will know Steph. She has been around for quite some time. She's most commonly referred to as the natural nutritionist. Now, this incredible human being has been working with um, the Burger Chain Grills to develop new um, recipes and menu items for them. She also um, spends her time and her energy educating workplaces and performance at work. Oops, sorry about that. There goes my phone. Um, <laughs> we really are raw and real here. 
So um, she works with lots of different places, lots of different organizations around productivity and performance and how food, real food, and real nutrition actually impacts a person's ability to not only be productive, but sustain that. But the part that I really love about um, Steph too is that she's worked with lots of normal people. And when I say normal people, she's also worked with a lot of elite athletes. So she's got a really beautiful cross-section of experience to be able to talk to us about today on, you know, real foods, how that impacts us. We're going to be covering things like fasting. We're going to be looking at gut health. We're going to be looking at pre and probiotics. We've got so much on the menu to talk about today with Steph. So welcome to the show, Steph. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Steph, we're going to be really concentrating on the low-carb, high-fat and fasting for fat loss, as well as hormone control and gut health. So we've got a fair bit to get through. So, But before we start, could you give us a little bit about uh, yourself, your journey? How did you get to this point? What made you so interested in nutrition? Yeah, so I have a, a definite personal story, like a lot of people in the nutrition space, but mine starts way back as a teenager, I, you know, I developed an interest in food, but unfortunately at the time it quickly became quite an unhealthy obsession. You know, it was originally to, to lose weight as a teenager and you all know what we were told to do back then. Well, we were told to eat less and move more and to eat low fat. And I went about doing that very well. You know, I was at the gym excessively. I cut out I literally all fat. I remember um, buying, you know, the 97% fat-free salad dressings and being afraid of avocado and everything just became about losing weight, following the conventional guidelines of the time. You know, long story short, I got to my 20s and realized, you know, I was actually really unhappy I, I think I, I was looking for happiness in achieving this goal weight, in being thin, um, but it wasn't until I achieved that that I realised that wasn't the solution to my happiness. I um, spoke to a number of different professionals and it was very much in that Western model where the solution for unhappiness is a prescription. Um Luckily, I didn't go down that route. I, I think deep down I knew there was another solution for me. I actually met someone who encouraged me to try going gluten-free. This is over 10 years ago. I didn't know what gluten was. There certainly wasn't, you know, the um, abundance of education that we have to this day, but I was pretty desperate. At the time, I was willing to try anything. I didn't want to have to be, you know, taking an antidepressant. So, I gave it a try and, you know, what started as gluten-free for me became this catalyst into real food and it, it was a complete 180 for me. It completely changed my, my overall health and, you know, it led to, led to me finding my purpose in life, which is as a nutritionist and being able to educate the world on the benefits of real food and for me, all of that collectively was what allowed me to find my happiness. You know, I'm a big believer that the purpose of life is a life of purpose. So that was missing prior to becoming a nutritionist. 
But obviously we now know that the foundations of our mental health starts in the gut and the food that we eat has the most powerful impact on that. You know, I didn't know it at the time, but I've definitely learned that firsthand. And I'm just so passionate about teaching the world that health starts with what you put on your plate. It sure does. <laughs> I, and the sooner our doctors um, learn this, the sooner the better, because I hear so many doctors saying these days, oh, no, what you're eating has nothing to do with your disease state. So not all of them. We've got some amazing integrative doctors out there, but it just blows me away when a specialist says this to somebody. So um, how do you think the traditional carbohydrate intake you know, the guidelines, uh, which we know so well as the, our major diet should be carbohydrates. So how do, you, how do the traditional carbohydrate intake guidelines impact on our gut health and our hormones? Mm, yeah, amazing question. I mean, there's lots of hormones we can talk about here, but the, the, the big one initially is that fat storage hormone insulin. So our guidelines are very heavy in refined carbohydrates, which are, you know, those found in a packet box or usually have a, a mascot and they're nutrient poor, but they also require insulin to be produced by the body to uptake the carbohydrate or the sugar into the cell. Now, insulin is a fat storage hormone. So what do we think happens if we're constantly producing insulin? We store fat, right? So we then become this fat storage human who cannot burn that fat for fuel. So we are then what is known as a sugar burner, and we also know that sugar is highly inflammatory. So essentially, our dietary guidelines have created this inflammatory cascade where from a gut health perspective, we're completely changing the environment, the pH, and that has this huge impact on what bacteria will survive and what will die. So, you know, we know that our gut is made up of trillions of bacteria and it's probably too simple to, you know, to talk about individual strains. But what I see a lot is people just do not have the, uh, the robustness and the abundance of the beneficial bacteria. Um, and largely that's come from the food that they eat but then obviously other um, influential factors like previous antibiotic use and, and stress, but all of it creates this dysbiosis, which can then perpetuate that sugar-burning environment, right? Because the, the pathogenic bacteria love to eat sugar um, and there are lots of theories showing us that they determine our food choices, our cravings. So then, you know, we continue to eat refined carbohydrates and we've got this high sugar diet and the, we're stuck. We're absolutely stuck because of the blood sugar roller coaster and that fat storage inflammatory cascade. So what's, what's the answer to that? Because I look at, I look at um, myself and it's it's a really interesting conversation because there's these um, I had the same sort of upbringing was going for the low fat no sugar type of stuff and then um, 
became vegan. And then just recently I went and did one of those um, DNA tests and it said that my diet needs to be predominantly carbohydrate, um, very, very low fat and, um, you know, medium sort of protein on that DNA test. My sister went and did hers. Hers came out very, very similar to mine. So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm looking at that sort of stuff and then I'm th- looking at the keto diet, which it sounds to me like that could be an answer to this high-carbohydrate-driven, high um, you know, gut issue that we're all, well, not we're all experiencing, but is so prolific. What's the balance? Like what's the, what's the answer to that? Yeah, it is really individual. So that's the answer. I think, you know, genetics is is one component, absolutely, but we've also got to acknowledge what works well for us. And it can be a little bit tricky to work out because essentially it's trial and error, right? But if we just define keto, it's the ketogenic diet where quite conventionally it's as low as 25 grams of carbohydrates per day, the research is clear on its therapeutic benefit for treating, you know, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, epilepsy, some cancers. So it's got it's got clear evidence on the therapeutic nature, but I don't think that it's necessary for the majority of people. So the the balance, as you asked, Karen, is the LCHF, that lower carbohydrate, healthy fat, as I define it. So I deliberately use the word lower because it's lower than the food pyramid. Now, if we look to our food pyramid, that's six to 11 serves of whole grains a day. That's like 400 or 600 grams of carbohydrates per day. So anything lower than that is good, right? (laughs) But then if we define it a little bit further, LCHF is a spectrum. So it could be as low as 25, which I've discussed has amazing therapeutic benefits, but it could be as high as 150 grams a day. Now, 150 is very different to our conventional four to 600. Um, But for a lot of people, and usually those that are already at a a lean body weight um, are quite active and have usually more, I guess, genetic Uh, tolerance of carbohydrates are those that sit about the 150 typically they're men Um, but then the spectrum can change you know most of my women are around about sort of 75 to 100 grams a day relative to things like activity level Um, but then we know that some people need to be at about 50 but that's often initially you know what what happens when you've got our generations lifelong high carbohydrate food pyramid we create this underlying carbohydrate intolerance. So that's essentially what how it starts. In some people, unfortunately, it's pre-diabetes, it's type 2 diabetes. But most of us that have followed the Western way have this underlying degree of carbohydrate intolerance. So we might need to initially change our plate to be looking at about 50 grams of carbohydrates a day. But with that, we reverse the underlying carbohydrate intolerance And we can start to include more whole food carbohydrates. And that's the difference. Those that are full of nutrients, like some starchy veggies or maybe a little bit of, you know, quinoa or basmati rice, if it suits the individual, I don't believe that grains are compulsory at all, but that it creates a space for a little bit more flexibility when the underlying metabolism is improved. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Look, it does. It's, it's, 
it's a really interesting um, exploration. So what you're saying is if a person has got um, gut issues or they're, they're not quite there yet, that, you know, heading more towards a keto kind of style of diet is going to be more healing for them. And then once they've done the healing, then go and have a look at, you know, the kind of carbohydrates that they're, that they're bringing into their diet. But again, like you said, and Cindy said this as well, is everything has to be really individual based on what works for you. And I think that that's a really important message to get out to everybody. And I think yeah. the sad thing at the moment is, is that we have become less and less tolerant to the foods we should be able to eat due to uh, everything that's happening in a modern world from agricultural practices to uh, the amount of additives, reserves and flavourings and chemicals that are in the food chain at the moment. And, and that's the problem is that people um, just have no, you know, they don't have that tolerance for food anymore. Steph, fasting is something that is becoming really popular at the moment. Like there's the longevity diet, which was all about the mimicking fasting diet and everybody's getting into intermittent fasting and not eating until 11 o'clock. Um, can you give us your take on um, fasting and um, if it has strategies and can, would you utilise it? Yeah, I think it can be an amazing strategy. First and foremost, we all fast, like we are all sleeping and hopefully not eating. So we're already fasting. A lot of us um, have been told that, you know, breakfast is that most important meal of the day. And that's kind of been wrapped up in you have to eat as soon as you wake. So, you know, that has led to basically breaking our fast much earlier than we need to or than we should. So I think of fasting as a muscle, it's just like a muscle that you work out in the gym. If you eat dinner at eight and breakfast at seven, you know, that's an 11 hour fast. So you're already doing that, right? Um, but we know that the, the benefits from, yes, as you say, longevity and definitely the, the metabolic benefits of, of teaching your body to burn fat for fuel, the autophagy, so the obviously the clean out of the dead cells overnight. Like there's so many amazing benefits and they they become exponential when you fast for longer. So I think it's really important to experiment with either having an earlier dinner, which has many other benefits we can cover, um, or a later brekkie. Like it doesn't have to be not eating until 11, but I like to encourage the the increase of the overnight fast to start because fasting, you know, a lot of the research on fasting is in men and they don't have the hormonal fluctuations that most women do. So we've got to be really careful that we don't extrapolate the data to everybody. Um, there are people like if you've got really poor blood sugar control and if you're not burning fat quite well at the moment, I wouldn't start with fasting. I would definitely start by, you know, building your plate and, fixing your blood sugar and improving your meal to meal satiety. But once you can, you know, confidently say that you've nailed that part of the picture, I would definitely experiment with an extended overnight fast. So as I said, you can simply do that by having an early di earlier dinner and or a later breakfast. The best protocol, like where the literature is very strong in those positive like metabolic and longevity benefits is the 16, eight, 
protocol. So it's a 16 hour fast. You therefore eat within an eight hour window. Um, when my clients start to experiment with that, they're usually doing it twice a week. I have a lot of clients who over time enjoy doing it more, but I actually have some personal experience where I was doing it every day and my menstrual cycle started to get really long and really out of sync. And so for me, that was a, a massive red flag to acknowledge the that female element of hormonal impact across the month and how it doesn't need to be always more is more, right? It's that individual tightrope that we walk to getting the maximal benefits without impacting things like, you know, obviously our menstrual cycle. So that's a consideration that I like to share from a personal experience because I think that, you know, women of, of quote unquote childbearing age have a little bit more to consider than obviously males or women that have um, been through menopause. But yeah, 168 is beautiful. You can make it really practical. Um, but there are a few considerations around, around training and things like that we can get into if you like as well. I love the training side of things when it comes to food and, and all of the, the different things that we can use when we are an athlete or we're, we're trying to do something specific, like even, you know, run a half marathon or a full marathon or say we've got a goal to complete 10Ks. So are you saying that those sort of things could be implemented if you were somebody who was keen to complete something like that or is it the same? Uh, no, it can definitely be helpful. It just needs to be a little bit more strategic. Karen, I don't know if you remember, but we were chatting um, about this topic over Facebook um, yeah. probably a few months ago now. So it has to, when it comes to exercise, I believe fasting needs to be intensity dependent. So if we think about what energy system our body uses, if you're doing an, an easy session, call it low intensity, some people call it LSD, like long, slow distance, it might be defined as a recovery jog. These are aerobic sessions. So an aerobic exercise is preferably where we burn fat for fuel. It has a much lower impact on our muscle glycogen levels. So that's how we store the carbohydrate in the muscle. Whereas when we're doing like intervals or speed sessions or race pace sessions or anything with high intensity involved, that's what we call an anaerobic session or it's more glycolytic in nature, our body burns through muscle glycogen. So there's a much greater recovery role after these sort of higher intensity sessions. So what I wouldn't advise is doing an anaerobic session, let's say at 6 or 7 a.m. and then not eating till 12. What you're not providing your body is with the, the protein and obviously the, the carbohydrates, the whole food carbohydrates for muscle glycogen replenishment. So if you're an athlete, by all means experiment with intermittent fasting, but do it on the days where you've either got recovery or low intensity. And then on the, those high-intensity days, you can make sure that you're refueling within the hour after training so that you're getting the most out of that session, which comes from the food that you eat in the recovery window and rest, of course. You'd feel pretty hungry after those sessions mm -hmm. a lot of the time anyway, so your body is, is really good at communicating if we actually listen to it as well and we're, we're, we're more tuned to its needs and we eat when we actually feel hungry and we obviously don't need to eat just because it's breakfast or morning tea time. One of the other things that I've noticed, Steph, is that um, I know for me personally, not being a nutritionist, but obviously someone who's very interested in skin and skin health, 
um, that we know that pretty much every skin condition um, is attributed to something going on in the gut. But then there's lots of people out there that don't even know they've got gut problems. They, they're not even aware that they have anything wrong with them except that they might think that fatigue or having headaches or constantly belching or having smelly wind or um, you know feeling uncomfortable and bloated in the tummy. I mean, for most people, these symptoms seem to be thought of as everyday normality. Are these, what would you say to someone who was saying to you that they had lots of belching or bloating or, or things like that? How do you explain to somebody that, that something's not right? Yeah, it's a great question because we know that all disease starts in the gut, but some of those symptoms that you mentioned are what we call systemic. You know, they're not as obvious. Like the, the, the bloating and the gas and the changes in the bowel movements, like they're quite easily linked back to gut health because they're the typical digestive symptoms. But, you know, I love that you mentioned skin because we know that the skin is the largest organ, so it just expresses the internal environment, but it's not so clear to someone that's maybe new to this space that it does stem from poor gut health. So, you know, it's going to be multifactorial, as you say, Cindy, all the time. It's probably largely to do with, you know, toxins and the changes in our food productions and, you know, what we're exposed to in this day and age. But all of that does come back to the gut. So I think a lot of it is, all right, well, I think of health as like building a house, right? So we know that, let's say, gut health is really vogue and kombuchas everywhere and everyone's talking about this but you know gut health is probably not what you need to do first i think that the foundation of the house is food because the way we eat and the way we live can actually just gently encourage our microbiome to rebalance throwing kombucha at it can be quite aggressive and in a lot of people makes them worse because it either causes you know the Herxheimer reaction which is that die off or they create this overgrowth of yeast because that's what kombucha is made from so I think we have to keep our perspective and look at all right well what are our foundations and if we've got a skin condition and we're just putting something on topically then we're missing the point because we need to start from the bottom the foundation of that house and it, it is what you're eating and what you're putting in your mouth Sorry, I was talking away there and realised that I was on mute. Sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was honestly concerned though. But so, so, okay, I get that with skin. We know that there's something going on in the gut. We definitely know that. But what would you say to the woman listening to this whose husband is a constant belcher? Um, it's all very good to say to him, we need to get your foundations right. But he'll say, you're not going to stop me drinking beer or you're not going to stop me having my... Tim Tam was my cup of tea, I don't know. But let's just say, how do you help somebody like that that isn't even aware that, or they think that it's just this fad, everyone's talking gut microbiome. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're just another one. Yeah, I think what it is is just finding an area that they can make some subtle changes first because the proof will be in the pudding, pardon the pun. You know, most people, like let's say if it's a client that comes to me for like fat loss. And that's their number one goal. I can guarantee you it's actually not their number one goal for very long because they suddenly sleep better or they don't have cravings anymore or their skin is better or, you know, they're not burping anymore. And so they start to learn firsthand the power 
in the decisions that they're making. So a lot of the time we just encourage those really small changes so they learn firsthand because like you say, if they're not really interested in it, they're not going to care what an article on social media says or even what their wife says, unfortunately. But if they've got like a particular pain point, like a symptom that they're working on and they notice that start to improve, like hopefully that's enough evidence for them to explore things further. And, you know, I don't expect anyone to go from a standard food pyramid to like LCHF overnight. I mean, my goal is small incremental changes that add up overall. People think I'm a little bit hardcore, but, you know, I'm just happy if someone's eating more vegetables ultimately. I think you can definitely take a deep dive if you want to, but it doesn't suit everybody. So, Steph, um, you talked about some symptoms with gut health, but you have a, and, and you talked about a subtle one, which is sleeping better. Mm. What are some other, um, some other symptoms that people may see improve once they start to eat better? Like, I just love what you said, you know, let's just get the, get them eating better because those subtle changes may influence the microbiome and when the health of the microbiome is working, then, you know, our immune system works better, we get more nutrients, et cetera. Mm. So what are some of the things once they start to get that apart from not belching anymore, Kim Morrison, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I just love the way she says that, that um, they might know those subtle changes that they might know that things are getting better because people don't mm. listen to the subtleties of their body. They don't, yeah. you know, if they get a little ache in their small finger, they don't think, oh, what did I eat yesterday? And yeah. what was All well, the inflammation's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really big one. I, um, we've probably all got our little sort of Achilles heel, that area of the body that speaks loud and clear. If we connect the dots, it, it can be really clear. Um, so joint pain is definitely one. Um I work with a lot of athletes, as you know, and it's these chronic inflammatory injuries that no amount of physio, no amount of treatment or foam rolling will fix until they dive deeper and address that underlying inflammation. That's a huge one. And, you know, a little bit of a side note, but, you know, I see so many athletes retiring at 30 or something like super young. And I, I, guarantee you there are so many athletes now regretting that they didn't know what we know now because they would have been able to completely transform their career and extend their career and avoid all the career ending injuries like it breaks my heart if I think about that too much because inflammation is a big one um you also mentioned nutrient absorption like I see we do a lot of blood tests with our our clients and I often see people with you know, fairly poor levels, let's say it's iron or ferritin or, you know, B12. And conventionally the prescription is, all right, well, you have low iron. Why don't you take an iron supplement? But unless that person's a vegan who's not getting dietary sources of iron, they're not absorbing their dietary sources of iron. They're not going to absorb a synthetic pill, in my opinion. So again, if you go root cause and fix the gut, then the nutrient absorption is going to exponentially improve and hopefully you won't need many supplements. I mean, some people definitely need some. I take, you know, a few things myself, but I don't want that to be our default. We're so good at reaching for a magic pill when, you know, we've got to turn things upside down and, and become more root cause. And as you say, Cindy, like be a bit more in tune. And, and if it is a food diary with some symptoms attached to that initially, 
be the investigator. It's your body. You're living in it. You're, you know, you're experiencing everything. It's so powerful to collect that information. Yeah. Agreed. You know, you talked about supplements and one of the, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you know, I've been in the game 40 years and I've just noticed the darling of vitamins and minerals walk through. So it started with vitamin C and then A and then E. Now it's D and K2 seems to be the big darling, but more than anything is the prebiotics and the probiotics. So, um, you know, I see people just walking in and, and grabbing some probiotics. You know, you see inner health advertisement on the, uh, you know, on the television uh, or in magazines. It's everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. So I want to know what you think about them and mm. what, what you think, you know, the ones off the counter. Do you think they're any good? Do you think we need prescription? Do you think we need tailor-mades? Mm. <laughs> well, I hope so just, one day. i tell you this, Steph. Um, at our net nutrition summit, we have... Um, we had, um, I'm trying to think, um, from Smart DNA, uh, Maggie Smith talk. Mm. And she's talking about creating probiotics specific for your DNA. So just having said that, I'd love yeah. to hear your, what you're thinking. Yeah, I think it's, like, I think it would be much better than in Health Plus, which is too strained. So we call that low diversity. And the issue I have, I mean, I have a lot of issues, so I'll, I'll try and break it down. Yeah. But, I mean, it's not as simple as adding in two strains of bacteria. I mean, first things first, if the environment is wrong, that pill will go in your mouth and out your bum and nothing will live inside you. So it's a waste of money. And I'm seeing that a lot. You know, we do stool testing, which captures the beneficial strains and, and the two in um, in Health Plus, just as an, as an example, are the bifidobacterium and the lactobacilli. So they're the ones that we know most about from a scientific point of view and people are taking them in quite high doses and then when we look at their stool test, there's none inside them. Like what does that tell you? It tells you that the environment is wrong. So the foundations, I feel, or the priorities are upside down. If you don't create the right environment, anything that you add is essentially going to die. And there's quite a lot of little topics underneath here as well. But if we just go back to the, the keto topic that we spoke about earlier, one of my big problems with keto is that it doesn't actually consider things like vegetable-based prebiotics. So we know that probiotics are the bacteria, prebiotics are their food. But if we're cutting out vegetables and not you know, we're not aware of the importance of prebiotics, we're starving our gut. So those probiotics will not live inside our gut. That's a huge problem that causes this cascade of dysbiosis, that, that rainforest that we're trying to create inside basically looks like there's been a fire that's gone through, a bushfire that's wiped everything out. So, you know, going back to your question, I just don't want that gut health conversation to mean that people think that the answer is to go and buy in health plus like that's uh you know that's really not going to be beneficial i think a strong dose like biocuticals i don't know if i'm allowed to say brands but biocuticals do a you know a 500 billion seven day course that i feel can suit some people after antibiotics because we know that antibiotics um are beneficial in, in some instances, of course, they're overprescribed, but there is a point in time where you may need to take a course and you've got to have strategies to counteract their impact. 
Um, but other than that, I think the priority is definitely food. Um, so real food, but then looking for, all right, what are the prebiotics that I'm consuming? And can I start to add in some probiotics in food in very small amounts? So I'm talking about, you know, a little bit of like a tea, sorry, a tablespoon of, of fermented vegetables with your omelet in the morning and assess all the above symptoms. I don't want any bombs being thrown at the gut. I think that's too aggressive. And as I mentioned before, can create a whole host of problems. Yeah, so most you- definitely. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We've all got something to ask. I know. <laughs> I know. It's so interesting. Just, um, just make a comment. Um, I'm listening to the GMO summit that's being put on by Jeffrey Smith, Steph. Mm. It's mind-blowing. Um, but it, it also is talking about the herbicide glyphosate as well as the new dicamba roundup or the, the new dicamba-ready GMOs and the new two or D-ready um, GMOs, one of the scientists, or he's actually a clinician and a scientist, was saying that the soil-based, um, what you're saying, the plant-based, the soil-based bacteria on our greens are more benefit to us mm. than the greens themselves. Now, with the current trend and the government um, regulation that says that all lettuces have to be sanitized. All of that, you know, that san- that lettuce that's in plastic bags, all the spinach in plastic bags, all has to be sanitized, which means it wipes out. And this is organic and conventionally grown, which means it wipes out all of the bacteria. So what's the point in eating the lettuce? And mm. when we start to see things like this, you know, wonder. We have these gut issues that we're seeing today, but I just, I just wanted to let you know that, that, you know, mm. that that's what I've learned in the last week um, with this gut, with the GMO summit. Um, and it just blew my mind. I'm listening to him going, of course, of yeah. course important, you know? <laughs> well, I think that, you know, the gut health strategies that we're missing is our exposure to dirt. You know, we live in this hygiene hypothesis and, we have wiped out any exposure. Whereas, you know, eating food that has dirt or playing with your dog or riding a horse or getting out in nature, walking barefoot, swimming in a lake, all these things are really, really important for your gut. And that's the lifestyle side of things that is, again, that really just gentle nudge in the right direction, not these bombs of probiotics and antimicrobials and crazy supplement protocols. I think it, again, we we're used to relying on a magic pill and we've got to, you know, take, take the blinkers off and get our ducks in a row and look at our, you know, our food and, and our lifestyle strategies that can really transform our gut health. Mm, agreed. agreed. So there's so much conversation about that. Mm. Um, Steph, for the lay person listening to this, mm. you know, you started off by saying that most of us now have really adopted to a, a carbohydrate, you know, high carbohydrate diet. How does a person, because there's a lot of talk about improving the gut, you know, the, the gut flora with food. Mm. What does that even mean? Like what sort of food? What do we eat? What kind of carbohydrates do we eat? What does a day, give me, give me a typical day um, of food that would help somebody whose gut health is poor, they've got joint problems, they feel like they're bloated, they feel like they're inflamed, they're belching, Kimmy, all of that sort of stuff. 
what 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 would their day look like in terms of uh, of, me- of food for the day? Yeah, amazing. I mean, I've I'll take you through like the food examples, and then I'll break it down into a bit more of a like a portion conversation and and how to build your plate. A really simple example would be to start your day with a vegetable-based breakfast. So that might be a, you know, a frittata that you've made on the weekend or if you're at home, you could do, you know, some scrambled eggs or an omelette. You want to make sure there's some healthy fats in there as well. So obviously egg yolks would count. Um, Cooking in coconut oil or adding some avocado would be a beautiful option. Essentially, you want to work out what keeps you full, what, gives you that blood sugar control and that satiety for about five hours. You know, we've all eaten a meal and been hungry in an hour and we've all eaten a meal and we've been like, wow, I'm so, I'm so satiated. I think that is something else to track, but it's going to be different for everybody. Um, You know, uh, Kim, you mentioned, you know, exercise. So some days you might need a little bit more to keep you full for five hours because you've done a big session in the morning. And so that takes a little bit of an experiment but as you move on to lunch, you know, I think that leftovers are one of the best decisions that you could make for lunch because, you know, what you're doing is obviously getting a dinner meal, which in the West has usually been the best meal out of all three because a lot of us have grown up by eating meat and veg and that might not have been the best quality and it might not have been organic, but the two meals that we've done the most injustice to is absolutely breakfast because cereal and toast and, and juice was on the menu and, and lunch is typically, you know, sandwiches and more refined carbohydrates or it's it's worse in the corporate space. So leftovers are a really great idea. If not, we're looking for, a you know, a simple salad with some protein like tuna or even chickpeas and, again, a really quality source of fat like some extra virgin olive oil. And then dinner, I I just love the simple meat and veg. We want to make sure, you know, ideally that we're going for grass-fed, pasture-raised, organic protein. Um, And in terms of vegetables, I always say eat the rainbow because the colour is really important for the nutrient profile. And and dinner is usually where I try to recommend um, the prebiotic squeeze into. So prebiotics are things like um, onions, garlics, artichokes or asparagus or if we can tolerate a little bit more starch, the, the cooked and cooled sweet potato is a beautiful form of resistant starch, which is that food for our, our gut bugs. So we just need to have made it the day before. So maybe we roast up some sweet potato on a Sunday and pop that in the, on the plate in an evening meal. But really three meals a day should be more than enough. On your fasting days, two should be sufficient in an eight-hour window. Um, But again, that really depends on the individual because a lot of people that have poor blood sugar control fall off their chair when they hear that two or three meals is enough. That can be quite overwhelming. So you don't have to start there, but it's, you know, it's the satiety and the flow on effect that building your plate will create. So often we snack less by default. And then you learn firsthand that, you know, that, that blood sugar control changes everything. It changes your experience at 3, th- 3.30. It changes your cravings. It changes your desire for particular foods. Like it's pretty, it's life-changing. It really is. Yeah, well, it's life-changing because you're telling them they can't eat chocolate cake anymore. <laughs> and it's dead. Um, <laughs> come on. Chocolate cake, come on. 
I know. I just wanted to check with you on this though. Like you mentioned chickpeas and you've mentioned salad and things. If someone's mm. trying to heal their gut though, mm. are they, are you not encouraged to go light? I thought, I thought, see, this is where I get confused. Is yeah. that things like legumes and, um, and, and cashews and, and things yeah. like that are harder on the gut to digest and we're supposed to have blanched or roasted or wilted vegetables and greens rather than fresh greens that are harder to digest. I mean, how do you know when's the right time to eat what? Yeah, that's a really true question. I think if someone's really unwell, then, I mean, absolutely more of that sort of GAPS protocol where it is slow-cooked meats and essentially everything's pre-digested and quite mushy. Um, I think that that can work really well. But I also think that, um, you know, your question around the salad and, and the chickpea example, like, for a lot of us, it's definitely like, especially when we look at legumes, it's how they're prepared. So it's not chickpeas out of the can, <laughs> um, ideally, but it's also our food behaviors. I mean, it sounds so 101, but most people don't chew their food, right? So if chickpeas are a carbohydrate and we produce amylase in the mouth, which is the enzyme that breaks down the carbohydrate, but we're inhaling our food and we're on Instagram scrolling while we're eating, um, don't be surprised if you have gut health symptoms. But the the beautiful news is that, you know, a lot of that can be reversed by eating mindfully and, and chewing your food and minimizing distractions. And they're very, very basic tips. But to be honest, most people that I see in clinic are not doing it. Yes, well, that makes complete and utter sense really, doesn't it? I mean, well, I think it's just so um, commonplace though, Kimmy, isn't it? I mean, we're all trying to do two or three things at once so we're on our phone checking messages while we're eating so we can kind of maximize the time because I honestly think and I'm just thinking even of myself eating is in my mind unconsciously but now that I'm forced to think about it I'm seeing eating as downtime and I don't have time for downtime (laughs) it's true you know so I'm eating at the same time that I'm doing something else and Steph, if what you're saying is that it could be as simple as that, which is causing a disrupted environment in the gut, well, surely that's got to be the first place where we all start mm-hmm. um, and then actually look at what we're eating. So you're saying cooked and cooled sweet potatoes, um, dinner for lunch. Um, what about, what about like Kimmy was saying, uh, raw versus cooked Mm. when it comes to vegetables? What about, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think it's really going to be quite individual. Again, that's going to come down to what's going on in the gut at the moment. Um, so I probably can't answer that black or white. I think definitely if you've got a lot of digestive issues, like maybe it's, you know, 10 years of that unfortunate IBS diagnosis, which is just the blanket name that's given to a digestive disorder that's otherwise undiagnosed, that, yeah, you want to move away of anything that's too much work for your your digestion to tolerate. But it's not a long-term solution. Like I think it's a short-term intervention but the broader aim is to fix the gut. So essentially you can tolerate chickpeas if you like them and you can tolerate raw food. Like I don't want anyone to eat poor quality food, but my goal for you know my clients is that they can eat everything, not that they're having to pull out more foods. Like I've met people that literally end up eating two foods because they're just told to pull out more foods. Mm. And I think that is a absolute malpractice because – 
it's just falling into that Western trap of treating the symptom and not the cause. So the cause of food intolerances is dysbiosis. So we need to dive deeper and get smarter and allow the tolerance of nearly all foods, like not the glutens and not the, you know, the seed oils or anything that we don't need, but anything that's, you know, in a natural whole food state should be tolerated. And if not, it's a sign. It's that red flag that your, your gut environment is not right. Is there a definitive test that people can take so that they can know exactly what their gut environment is like rather than guessing and then trying to self-diagnose? Yeah, there's heaps. I mean, in terms of science in general, it's, it's baby days, it's early days. Um, there's quite a few. They, they're usually called a fecal microbial analysis. So that's a, a stool sample where these days it's mostly done by culturing the DNA. So it looks at what, organisms live there and and what in what numbers so it can identify you know compared to a healthy gut what 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 bacterial strains are low which is part of the dysbiosis picture so you know often we are seeing these low levels of the lactobacilli and the bifidobacterium and then it also identifies what levels are too high so you know is it an E. coli overgrowth? Is it a candida overgrowth? Is it a streptococcus overgrowth? What's in there? Is there a parasite? What's in there that's causing part of the problem? And I think that's, you know, I always say test, don't guess. So it's an investment. It might be, you know, $400, but which might be a lot of money for some people, don't get me wrong. But, you know, 10 years of IBS and, oh, yeah. and specialist appointments and different supplements. And, it, you know, to me, that's, that could all be avoided if we make the initial investment in our health and l- learn about what's going on in there and, and then work with someone that's experienced to help you rebalance your microbiome. Nice. Nice, nice. advice. Nice and, advice. And do you think, girls, all of you, do you think that we are talking more about the gut now or these always had these problems or is it just interesting because of what we've done to our food over the last however many decades that this has become, I mean, I know there's an increase in gut problems, but have these, are these problems reversible or have they always been around? They've, they, you know, I don't think they've been around in epidemic proportions as we see them today, Kim. Um, I'll let no. Steph answer what she thinks too, but, you know, like what I remember seeing 40 years ago, I don't, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember hearing anything like I'm seeing now. Plus, we've become more knowledgeable about the importance of the microbiome. Plus, um, we're on the third, fourth generation, maybe fifth generation of antibiotics. Yeah. Um, plus, GMO and glyphosate have been sprayed since the 90s, the mid-90s on our food. Um, and in the last, and that's an antibiotic, you know, that, and that's in all of our foods. You know, it's in our oats, it's in our wheat, it's in, oh, my gosh, they're finding it in everything, the testing. So I think it's a culmination of everything that we have been doing and we have to wake up. Because if we do not change, the next generation is going to have more mental health problems, more gut issues, which equates, you know, the gut and the, and the mind are together. So that's my thoughts. What, are, what about you, Steph and Karen? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think if we look to our, let's say, our great-grandmothers, I mean, they would have naturally been fermenting foods because they didn't have a refrigerator, potentially. So they were 
probably by default consuming fermented foods, but they, yeah, they weren't exposed to the degree of antibiotics like, you know, our generations are and, and their food was probably in their backyard, you know? So they, they weren't living in the world that we're living in with the prevalence of, of stress and all the day-to-day pressures. So yeah, that, I think it's just that, that now we're looking at that sum total of all the things that you mentioned, which is very opposite to what it was, as you're saying, Cindy, like 40 years ago. There's so much in our way at the moment. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have the health crises that we do at the moment. It's sad, but it's true. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Like listening to this summit, you know, they're all, they're all saying it's, 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 we've got to wake up. We've mm. just got to wake up. Karen, what about you? Have you, in your years on this planet, when have you started to notice it? Look, you know, it's actually interesting. I don't think I noticed it. I, I wasn't as aware of it until I met you, Cindy. Um, but then I guess once I started to feel my own issues take hold, um, it's, that's when I've actually started noticing it and looking at it and being present to it. Mm. So when I look at my family, though, um, I can see based on the conversations and the education that I've gleaned from you over the years, Cindy, and obviously all my own research as well, I can see where it all started. And it certainly wasn't my mum's intention. It was the nature of the food. Mm. And I can see where it all started right, right back from when I was probably, you know, we came to Australia when I was seven and I don't have a memory of having a massive extended stomach until I was eight. But I've had a st- an extended stomach since I was eight and I look back on kids on my, on my school photos and I see it back then and I see the, the real chubbiness in my face and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And it wasn't because I was eating bad food. My mum was you know, my a spectacular cook and always everything was homemade. She didn't work. So I think the quality of the food back then, I can see why we're struggling now. Um, and the accumulation effect. And to be really honest, I look at myself and I really started to struggle personally from the age of about 29, 30. I started to battle with it. So I'm pushing 20 years now. That makes me want to cry. What did I just say? <laughs> oh, why? Well, that's interesting because it was... 48. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time, 28. So 1996 was when that we really started to change how our agricultural practices were so that's 22 years ago so it might have yeah it's it's this Steph um what excites you at the moment you know like I get excited about things like you can see I've got a bee in my bonnet about GMOs (laughs) (laughs) because that's all I hear for four hours every day Mm. what was your first clue (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, or belching. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with belching? Why are you, is that not a word here? No, it was just so cute the way you go. The husband belched. It's very polite. Oh. <laughs> it's very polite. Not, oh. not. Yeah, it was Oh, it was just a personal question. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was. I thought you were just taking the So, yes, what's what's exciting you about what's happening in this space at the moment? Uh, you know, I think it is going to be the progression of where science is in terms of gut health. Like, you know, we know that just there are lots of 
benefits of looking down the the fecal microbial transplant, the FMT route for people that have this long history of dysbiosis. And I've just got this visual of us being able to go online and, and shop for poo because we want to get healthy and we want to have the right strains of bacteria inside us. I'm not so sure. <laughs> no? We're going to go shopping for poo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it, it, you mark my word. The best. You mark my word. Honestly, I I strongly believe that's what's going to happen next. Wow. <laughs> so it's the up for a You know, you shop for you want to go to. Mm. So it, it's it's already happening. You know, there's one in yeah. Australia that I know of. There's a couple in America. There's one in England. There's one now in below Florida because that's the English one that did it because in America they'll only do it for C. diff, mm. whereas um, anywhere else in the world they're doing it for other things. Is, uh, it, is it like a blood transfusion where the minute you have it you feel instantly better? Is that the whole idea? Right. Or does it take, yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. 24 hours I don't hold because of the yeah. environment. So yeah. as Steph was saying at the beginning, you know. So while we're talking poo, yeah. I just, <laughs> Steph, I'd love your opinion on enemas, those long, a long black up your button, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. just tell me your thoughts on an enema. Yeah, I think that can be really magical. Absolutely. Um, there's lots of different ways you can do it, but um, you know, the the traditional way, like with coffee enemas, dates back to you know pre-war days in terms of helping eliminate toxins from the body. Um, for a lot of people, it is the final piece of the puzzle. If there's things like a parasite that they haven't been able to get rid of, even if it was down the conventional route initially, um, it can really also help normalize that that internal environment like people are constipated honestly people are so constipated they think it's normal to not move their bowels uh, you know only once a week or every other day where you know i want to normalize this conversation because you've got to be moving your bowels at least once a day um and you don't want to sort of do it aggressively like by needing to take laxatives or even having to take too much magnesium powder, I think enemas are a really safe way to, again, just gently start to in, in, encourage that natural environment. And we've been talking about toxins the whole day. Like there's toxins everywhere. Even if you do have great awareness about living low tox and, you know, prioritise where you buy your food from, you know, it's just we're, we are pushing shit uphill, pardon the pun, because of the world that we live in. and. I think that having these strategies that are really affordable that you can do in your own home is so powerful because then your health is in your own hands and it's not about a magic pill. I think it's about developing this beautiful routine that can support your, your health today, but, you know, definitely look after your longevity because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. I think, I think we're all stumped now. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do agree with you and that is that, um, it's time to take responsibility mm. for our, our own health. And, yeah, I, lo- I love what you said, Steph. Thank you. So if you've been an absolute 
font of knowledge <laughs> today's podcast and it feels like we've only just begun. I feel like mm, there's just so much more to, to talk about. It's been the fastest hour mm. I've had all week. In the flow state. I love it. Totes to that. So yeah. for everybody who's listening, where can they um, either work with you, become a client of yours, talk to you, follow you, consume your stuff? Thank you. Yes, my online home is the naturalnutritionist.com.au and all the usual social medias on that handle. I mostly hang out on Instagram at the natural nutritionist. I'd love you guys to reach out. If you either have any questions or if you want to learn more, please do get in touch and I'd love to say hi. Fabulous. Awesome. So for all of our listeners, make sure that you check out Steph's website and get in touch with her on social media. Steph, thank you for being a part of today's podcast. You've been a font of knowledge and I fear I have far more questions that I need to have answered. So look out for my messages. (laughs) Amazing. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You are most welcome. What a treat. So for all of our listeners, please make sure that you go to Steph's website, check her out and follow her because I don't reckon that there's any one of us that doesn't have some of the symptoms that have been discussed here today. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.